on the screen. Um, all right, so I'm not going to read over the verses first because there's a lot of verses to go through. But basically, so far in Genesis, we encountered uh, Isaac and... Um, um, now I'm forgetting his name, Abimelech. <laughs> and basically, Isaac was visiting and saying Gerar, and he had all these issues. But in the end, we kept on seeing the same theme over and over and over again. Despite Isaac making mistakes, and despite the fact that he lied, just like Abraham had lied, God continued to bless him. Um, and then that was it. That was kind of it for Isaac. Now we're actually going to continue on with Jacob. <laughs> so he gets a chapter, but it's, it's still good. Uh, So why are we at the end of chapter 26? Because the last two verses of chapter 26 actually deal with his son, Isaac's son Esau. So we're going to start with verses 34 through 35 in uh, chapter 26. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So prior to beginning chapter 27, we have this minor tidbit at the end of chapter 26. Here we find Esau marries two Hittite women. One was Judith and the other was Basmuth. That he takes these as his wives leads to some of the problems we will face in the next chapter. Ultimately, we know one thing. The women made life bitter for Isaac and for Rebekah. What it was that they did was unknown to us. Um, And it seems unnecessary to speculate. We could have fun with that. We could say, oh, you know, they they just stepped on their toes or something religious. We don't really know. It could be a multitude, a plethora of things. Um, But as it is, we don't know. It it was a bitterness there. So now we go on to chapter 27, and we'll go through 1 through 4 first. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat it, that my soul may bless you before I die. All right, so chapter 27 jumps into the future. We learn Isaac's life has passed rather quickly and that his vision is failing him. Um a common problem with old age. Recognizing this, Isaac decides to call Esau to him. This begins the first scene of the chapter. It is interesting how the text describe it. Notice Esau, his older son. Likewise, how Isaac calls him my son. This division between Jacob and Esau in the womb and the division in the family afterwards is reflected here. As we remember, when the boys were born, Isaac favored Esau while Rebekah favored Isaac. Rebecca did not favor Isaac, she favored Jacob. <laughs> Still, we learn in part the reason for Isaac calling Esau. And it's interesting. Isaac is unsure when his death will occur. More often is the case that when one is uh, on one's literal deathbed, that the individual would call relatives in order to settle their estates. We saw this with Abraham. Here, however, Isaac is not in such a state. Ultimately, Isaac has a simple request for Esau to go out and to hunt, and with the game to prepare Isaac the food he loves. Isaac, as said previously, loved Esau because of his appetite. As such, Isaac desires such food again. Once Esau returns, Isaac will bless Esau before his death. So far, the story is rather well known. We all know exactly how it turns out, but there are some things to notice even before we continue. First, Surely Isaac knew about the oracle concerning his sons, that Jacob would be before Esau. 
So why is Isaac about to bless Esau despite knowing God's will? Second, why is Isaac doing it in this way? It was customary to bring all of his children together in order for the blessings uh, to be presented to the children. Again, much as the same way Abraham had done prior to his death. So why is Isaac only having Esau? Third, is Isaac truly near death or is he only using his deteriorating condition as an excuse to bless Esau? And fourth, notice how Isaac says, my soul may bless you rather than that I may bless you. It seems Isaac truly wants to give Esau the blessing, even if it means circumventing tradition and the will of God, so that his favored son will receive the blessing. Now we'll go on to verses 5 through, I believe, 12. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food, that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, behold, my brother Esau, a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go bring them to me. So the second scene has Rebekah listening in on Isaac and Esau. As soon as Esau goes out into the field, Rebekah acts. And, you know, we're kind of reminded of her as a young girl running to and fro in order to water the camels. Her energy is kicked into high gear as she approaches Jacob. Notice the terminology is specific. Her son, Jacob. The family divide is quite strong. Notice she then repeats what she heard Isaac say to Esau, but, so, but does so with some minor but significant changes. She does not mention that Isaac says that my soul may bless you. Uh, this is likely is meant to soften the fact that Isaac truly wants to bless Esau instead of Jacob. Likewise, he added before the Lord is her way of likely showing the significance of the blessing itself. It was not a simple blessing, but the blessing which Isaac is going to offer. From here, she commands Jacob to do as she requests. Notice again the my son statement showing further us the familial divide. Ultimately, she wants her son to go and bring two young goats so that she can prepare the meal for Isaac. Why doesn't she have Jacob do this? Um, Is it because she is the better cook or the faster one? Who can say? All we know is that she is willing to do whatever it takes in order for Jacob to receive the blessing. Indeed, that is the purpose. Once she has prepared the stew, Jacob is to take it to Isaac so that the blessing would fall on Jacob instead of Esau. This is her desire, and she is willing to go through many means and many lengths in order to achieve it. Some might think of Jacob's response as one of lucidity uh, and perhaps showing some morality in the situation. As it is, however, we notice his concern isn't with doing anything wrong, but in getting caught. (laughs) Esau has more hair on than Jacob. Sure, Isaac would be able to tell the difference. Once that happens, Isaac will be angry and end up being a curse on Jacob instead of a blessing. Rebecca, understanding the dilemma, is willing to take that risk by offering herself as the cursed one instead of Jacob. Whether or not such a thing is even possible for a curse to pass on another person in this manner is debatable. 
Regardless, it certainly eases Jacob's mind in what it is she is requesting of him to do. Yet the urgency is also clear, and one must wonder if Jacob asks because of his devotion to his mother, because he loves his mother. Now we come to verses 14 through 17. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread, which she had prepared, into the hand of her son Jacob. So while Jacob had his doubts concerning possibly receiving a curse and the reasoning behind it, Rebekah had other thoughts. But before dealing with that, she quickly prepares the delicious food for Isaac. She clearly knew Isaac and knew what his taste buds preferred after all these years of being married. Then, to deal with the other issues, she takes the best of Esau's clothes and puts it on her other son, Jacob. It is interesting how the text describes each son, Esau the older, Jacob the younger. It is almost as if the oracle is literally coming true of Jacob usurping Esau's place. Once she places the clothes on Jacob, she then puts the skin of the goats on his hands and neck. And the goal of this is to make Jacob seem hairier than he actually is, and hopefully get away with the deception on Isaac. For at this point, she gives the food to Jacob and sends him into Isaac. The trap is set. We must now see how it ends. Now we're going to go through 18 until 29, and then those will be the last of the verses. So he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come here, come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are like the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother's Esau, because of his brother's Esau hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. And he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father said, Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of the field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. The tension builds as Jacob enters into his father's abode. Indeed, he says, my father. This is a deferential way of speaking to his father, yet the description is short-lived. Isaac's response makes us wonder, who are you, my son? Is it possible Isaac is aware of the situation? Is he at all fooled by what's happening? Is Rebecca scheming in vain? Jacob is resolute. He responds, I am, your, I am Esau, your firstborn. Scholars note the way Jacob responds, as in the Hebrew there is an emphasis, I am Esau. 
Indeed, the unnecessary further statements, your firstborn, and doing what Isaac had requested further shows Jacob is trying very hard to be convincing in the circumstance. Then the further and quicker and somewhat focused, eat so that you will bless me. It's all very fast. He's trying to get to the point. Indeed, too fast. Isaac does not seem convinced and asks how on earth Esau had managed to hunt and prepare it so quickly. The response from Jacob is truly, as some commentators know, a blasphemous statement. Because God had granted me success. A complete and total lie on the part of Jacob in order to win the blessing. Even with this statement, Isaac is not necessarily convinced. Indeed, the tension grows as Isaac requests Jacob come closer so he can feel him. In this way, Isaac will be able to know whether or not this is an imposter. Jacob moves closer, and upon feeling his hands, Jacob seems confused. He can tell it is Jacob's voice, but the hairy feeling is too much like Esau, not Jacob. Ultimately, deception works as Isaac concludes it is not Jacob, but Esau who is with him. Or at least, it was enough for him to be more convinced than he once was. He still seems surprised, but perhaps not as skeptical as he once was. Indeed, he asks if he is truly Esau, to which Jacob responds again affirmatively. Then the test of the palate takes place as Isaac eats the food which was prepared by Rebekah. Would his belly be fooled by the imitation? He eats, he drinks, and then the final test. Isaac requests Jacob come close and kiss him. This final test is also passed by Jacob. The smell is clear enough. This was Esau before him. Thus, as we see, he was deceived with his eyes. He was deceived with his taste. He was deceived with his touch, deceived with his ears, and deceived with his nose. Jacob and Rebekah had managed to deceive Isaac completely. So it is, Isaac proceeds to bless Jacob. He begins by emphatically declaring the smell is that of Esau. As you remember, Esau was a man of the fields and the hunt, so it would be natural for his clothes to smell as such. We notice, too, how Isaac recognizes that this itself is a blessing from God. Yet notice how the blessing is then phrased. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. It is interesting because it fits far more with Jacob's character than Esau. As we've stated, Esau was a man of the field, but this meant open fields where he could hunt and take place, not the cultivated land as mentioned in this blessing. So it is strange and perhaps providential for the blessing to be stated in this way as it fits more of Jacob's permanent lifestyle goals rather than Esau's nomadic lifestyle where he's always traveling and moving. The final point of the blessing is in verse 29 and begins by describing the people and nations bowing down to you. Who did Isaac have in mind? Was it for a time in the far future or near future? Ultimately, we are unsure, though it is likely a blessing similar to possessing the gates of their enemies. It then leads to a reflection on the oracle from Jacob and Esau's birth. If we remember, the oracle was that the older would serve the younger. Now the blessing restates it, that his son would be lord over his brothers, indeed, all the sons of your mother. Later on, it is interesting to note how Jacob's sons will actually bow down to Esau. Thus, it seems more hereditary than saying that Rebekah had more sons than Jacob and Esau. The blessing ends with, Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be anyone who blesses you. This is similar to the blessing pronounced on Abraham, that God would bless those who bless Abraham and curse those who disdain him. Despite the differences, it ends how it began with the blessing. 
So it is, Jacob has received the significant blessing from Isaac, which sets the oracle into a firm foundation, as well as driving the deeper wedge between the family. All right. So the main points of these verses are describe how Jacob receives the family blessing. Despite the oracle, which clearly had Jacob as the lead, Isaac still prefers to seek out to bless Esau. Upon hearing this, Rebekah and Jacob use deception in order to win over the blessing. The deception works, and Isaac blesses Jacob, believing it is his beloved son Esau whom he has truly blessed. All right, so what's an application we can get from this? Um, if it's that you should deceive people, that is not right. <laughs> Just so you know. If there is anything we have seen with consistency within our time in Genesis, it is this idea that we can manipulate people and things within the world in order to get our way. We saw how it was with Adam and Eve as they were tempted by the serpent to get what they wanted. With Cain and Abel and Cain's response to Abel's blessing. Likewise with the people in Noah's time, how they were giving themselves to darkness for the same power and gain that they could have. Then again, at the Tower of Babel, by making a monument unto themselves. Even in Abraham and Sarah's story when it comes to Ishmael and Hagar, we see people who keep on trying to do things in order to attain something more. Yet again, we find the age-old problem of humanity placing uh, within their own hands, believing they will, by their own means, accomplishing far more than simply trusting in the word of God. God had spoken concerning Jacob, yet both Jacob and Rebekah saw it necessary to intervene. By willingly deceiving a blind man, they did what they wanted and got what they wanted, but at what cost? As it is, we are all in the same boat. Individually, as well as corporately, we continue to be tempted by the same premise, by the same goals, by the same ideals. We consistently believe we are far more capable than God. We continue to believe that if everything were in our hands, surely the world, or at least our personal view of the world, would be a far better place. I know that I am this way sometimes, or at least I have been this way in the past at times. How easy it is for us to come to difficult circumstances, and instead of trusting in God to take things into our own hands, how easy it is for us to go our own way rather than trust the God of the universe. We see it happen all the time. Consider it. A wife who believes it is better to not follow God's definition of a wife, or a husband who believes it is better to go a different way than what the scriptures declare to him concerning his role. Maybe the husband... Instead of loving his wife as Christ loves the church, maybe he's overbearing, harsh, and cruel with his wife. Maybe he points out all of her flaws and bitterness and lacks grace with her. Perhaps he spends most of his time being grumpy, being a husband who is somewhat intolerable to live with. Maybe he justifies not loving her because she makes so many mistakes. Conversely, maybe the wife instead of being submissive and respectful, finds her husband to be quite the buffoon. Don't laugh. Maybe she spends a lot of her time undermining him, mocking him, taking sharp jabs at him with her speech toward him. Maybe she rolls her eyes at him when he speaks, setting a precedence for the children. 
Maybe she speaks to her friends behind his back, loathing him instead of honoring him. Maybe they're both at fault. Maybe the problem isn't just one of them. Maybe they are both like this. Maybe they both are choosing their own way in their marriage rather than trusting the way God has designed it. Maybe for them, they think that they are right in their own eyes. Yet what would be the response? The response under both circumstances is to be faithful to their calling. Husband, love your wife as Christ loves the church. No exceptions, no conditions. That's hard, you say. I say, yes, it is hard. I know. But how great is that love? And how easy to submit to such a man who has such deep affections for his wife. Conversely, wife, it's to respect and to submit to your husband. That's hard, you say. I believe that. (laughs) I am a husband. It is a fearful thing to respect or submit to me. I am sure I wouldn't want to. I know my failures. I am sure Carissa knows them too. And thank goodness she's not here (laughs) to hear me talk about her. Yet like the husband, wives are to do these things without conditions having to be met. In neither case are either one or the other in need to meet the list of perfections we have in our heads. Instead, both should be encouraging each other to faithfulness. Faithfulness. This is just a glaring example of the way in which we tend to go our own way in regards to our marriages. Maybe it's something else, though. Maybe it's the business owner who uses unethical practices in order to have profits. Maybe it's the teacher who spends more time trying to cut down forests instead of irrigating deserts. In other words, the teacher who spends more time telling their students what to think rather than how to think. Perhaps it's the politician who will say anything on the campaign trail just to get elected and do nothing that they said they would do. But even these aren't enough examples. When it comes to spiritual disciplines, we tend to do things our way there also. Whether it is not spending much time in prayer, even though we're told repeatedly to pray, or not spending time in the scriptures, even though the apostles remind us the scriptures are God-breathed. Perhaps it's not attending church, even though we are told to not forsake the assembly. Let's take it a step further. Not only is it true we go our own way when it comes to these personal decisions, it is also true that we do it in the church, in our congregations, with our teachings. It is far easier, after all, to relate to people by telling them only that God is love. It is far easier to preach only on what people want to hear rather than dealing with the harder issues that really take time. Indeed, it is far easier to allow ourselves to remain as infants, drinking milk, as Paul would say, doing little to encourage growth and eating adult foods, as again Paul says in 1 Corinthians. We are so willing to cast aside what is true in order for things to go our way. We would rather do so much to get so many more people in rather than trust in the methods of God himself with our congregations. We would rather trust in our own abilities than trust in the God of heaven and earth who has given us what we need already. We would rather trust in a program than trust the word of God. Rather trust in the strength of our own hands to make things grow 
than be faithful to God who has promised growth if we are faithful. The problem with us isn't that God hasn't given us enough information already. No, the problem with us is we want to do things our own way and trust in our own means, our own methods, our own ideas. Meanwhile, God is patiently waiting for us to turn around toward him in faithfulness and obedience, with arms wide open as a signal to us our joy and our purpose will never be found apart from him. Do you know what I say about all this? Enough of our way. Enough of my way. Let's instead seek God's way as a manner and a means. Let's seek to glorify him in faithfulness and obedience to him. Let's try not Let's not try to bring about better things by inventing emotions and calling it from God. Let's actually find a true and lasting peace, not in our own abilities, but in God. How many of us are so tired of the heavy burden of life? How many of us have forgotten the words of Jesus? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We willingly burden ourselves by placing it on our shoulders to figure everything out. Aren't we tired of this? Aren't we exhausted with trying our own methods to bring things like revival to our bones? Meanwhile, Christ calls to us, you can rest easy. All that is required is faithfulness, simple faithfulness. It's not magic. It's not overbearing. It is simple faithfulness. That's all God asks of you and I. His ways are good and they lead to far greener pastures than any you or I could manage to find on our own, going our own way. So enough of it. Let's end our own way today and let's seek the way of Christ, being faithful and obedient to what he has called of us in our lives. Our God is good and wonderful And knows what is best for us in our lives and for all people. As such, let's place our trust in his way, knowing that there is no greater way than his. Yeah, when it comes to Jacob and Esau and their story, I mean, you just see it. You see the the deception and you see it and you kind of wonder, how could people do that? But we do it all the time, don't we? We really do. We always do that. And it even starts with when we get away from even the simplicity of the gospel and we get away from just how deep it is, too. Um, you know, there's this one lyric from a song I once heard. And I know I'm going to songs, right? But uh, it says this. Um, the truth is a river where the strong can swim down deep, but the weak and the broken can walk across so easily. You know, and that's the wonder and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. There's a place for all of us in it, but it requires us to simply be faithful. Faithful to what we learn about our origins. Faithful to remember to remind people that they are not stardust, that they are made in the image of God himself, that every person, every human being is made in the image of God and therefore has dignity, sanctity, and worthiness of life itself. How did we get away from that concept? (laughs) 
It's a concept that is just taken away recently and plaguing our society. Yet we have a great foundation for ourselves. It's in God himself and then from him it flows. Well, I guess the way that it became a plague on our society, though, is because of the fall. You know, in, in Sunday school, we're going through this Total Truth book, and I admit it can be really difficult to think about sometimes. Um, but I love it because Mike always reminds us, you know what? You see all these things, and they're the effect of the fall. <laughs> all these different ideas are antichrist by definition. And that's what we see in our society, these antichrist beliefs, these beliefs that go against who God is. Well, what's our response? Our response is... God. <laughs> Our response is the truth. And so the fall itself, I mean, it doesn't just permeate our society in morality. It doesn't just permeate our society in, you know, good acts versus bad acts. It also permeates in the fact that it intellectually destroys us, who we are as people. You know, I say repeatedly, and Christ reminds us, the, the law is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why those four things? Because we don't love him with those four things. Because we go into the fall and we run headlong into things that don't love God with our hearts, minds, souls, or strength. That's why it's a commandment. We have to aim for this and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Because when we don't follow after God, we sin. And that sin deserves judgment. So the question is, how can we find redemption according to Christianity, according to what we have learned for ages? We find redemption not in how we do things, but in what Christ has done and what God has done. That God reaches down into our sin, stepping in, and he pulls us out. The gospel is a wonderful thing. And then that redemption, it overtakes our hearts, minds, bodies, and souls. And it causes us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And you know what? That leads us to no longer being people who deceive other people. But instead, we seek to honor and glorify God by loving others and loving our God and loving our spouses and our friends. And it causes us to want to share the truth of the gospel. And it causes us to want to see this great redemption, which is so deep and so wide and so wonderful to affect every part of our lives. Jesus is wonderful. And it's all leading further on into glory. It's leading us into a complete and total, when we don't have any of these clouds before us, when it's not a mirror darkly, but we're able to see our God completely. And this whole redemption, we're going to look back and say, how wonderful is our God? for bringing this redemption. How great is our God? Truly. How great is he? Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much because you are a God who shows us that you are complete. And that not only are you complete, but that means that your ways are complete. And that you are full of mercy and grace, but also full of justice and judgment. And Lord, it is from you that we learn morality. It is from you, who you are, that we understand what justice is. We understand what all these things are that you keep on calling us to. It all stems from you. And so, Lord, as we read about Jacob and Esau, and we learn about these people from old, and these, these individuals from whom there is great sin, 
we also recognize that you have grace and mercy on them as well. And if you can have grace and mercy on people who deceive and who break the law and who are repeat offenders, then that means that you can show us grace and mercy too. And so, Lord, as we continue to learn about these people of the faith, we ask that you would continue to give us faith. We ask that you would continue to grow the kingdom of God in our hearts. That we would shine the light of Jesus on everyone. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we stand.